0: Hello and welcome to season two of Chatting to a Friend. Season one was the most amazing experience for me, and the life lessons and wisdom I learned from my guests, plus the fun I had, was absolutely beyond my wildest dreams. The goal for season two is to add more variety and diversity to my guest list. I absolutely love adventure and sport, and so those will still feature heavily, but I wanted to talk to more women who have very different life experiences to mine, careers, backgrounds and challenges that I wanted to learn more about to widen my understanding and broaden my horizons. I realise there's a lot of me, me, me in this intro, but it's because I still feel like it's the most extraordinary privilege for me to talk to and learn from these women. And so even if no one's listening, it remains the most personal of all my projects. Having said that, from the amazing feedback I've had and how much you have kept listening between seasons, I know you're going to love these conversations too. Please don't forget to rate and review the podcast either on Apple or on lovethepodcast.com forward slash chatting to a friend. I can't wait to hear how you love season two. Today's guest is Monica Stattler. She is German, uh, but has lived all over the world. She is the record holder for being the first woman to cycle the whole of the Vuelta de España on the same day as the men, only a few hours earlier. But that's not just all she is. This conversation is so inspiring. And we talk about big decisions that she's made in her life to give up things that she's committed to because they didn't feel right, they didn't give her what she thought they would and how we can use these patterns and wrong decisions, if you like, or decisions that didn't quite turn out to look and see what it is we really want out of life. I found this conversation so energizing and inspiring. And I loved just hearing, not just about the physical challenges and the, you know, wanting to be a volleyball player, wanting to be a a professional cyclist and, and taking on the huge challenge of the Vuelta, both the logistics and the riding, but just Monica's outlook on life, her energy, her way of looking at things that I think could be so useful to anybody thinking about what do I really want to get out of life and how can I get my intrinsic motivation tapped and find out what would make me happiest and most fulfilled. It was an absolute pleasure. Enjoy. Hi, Monica. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you? Hey, Katie, I'm good. How are you? Really, really well. Thank you. I was really excited to be introduced to you by a mutual friend. Um, And once I heard your story, I was like, yep, you're absolutely right. She needs to be on my podcast immediately. <laughs> and one of the things that I liked, and I'm going to get on to your sporting endeavors and all the kind of amazing records and decisions you made throughout your life to get you to that point. But I'm really interested by one of the first things that's in your sort of bio, which talks about um, diversity and that's what you do for a living now about really, truly getting diversity into organizations and making sure that they're talking to different, diverse customers. How did you, what does that mean exactly? I uh, come from the cycling industry,
1: um, and uh, probably we'll be talking about this all um, afterwards, um, but I realized um, as a cyclist, but also having worked in the cycling industry, that's a heavily male dominated and very hom- homogeneous uh, group of people. And. I realized that um, certain decisions um, or like conversations are just not being done when uh, you have a homogeneous group of people, um, especially now with the pandemic where more women um, are cycling. Um, I saw that there is definitely a need within a corporation to uh, generally becoming more diverse. So they can also reflect their customer base and uh, yeah talk to a customer base themselves, but also just within the team, it's yeah. Studies have shown that um, a team or a company organization is way more successful when there's more diversity within the organization.
0: That's super interesting. I love that idea that it's a conversation because, as you say, when there's a conversation happening between people who are all the same, the co- it's not a proper conversation, is it? Yeah, definitely
1: as certain um, viewpoints are missing um, when Mm. you, yeah, um, you wouldn't even realize that they're missing if you don't even have those people in the room who might shedding light on a certain kind of, yeah, a different angle of certain aspects
0: of a product or service. Exactly. So it's not often done maliciously. It's just, as you say, there's nobody there to say, uh, hold on a minute. Have you thought about this? Correct. (laughs) Exactly. And so how do you go about helping people do that? Um, I talk to, um, I work with
1: organizations and companies and, um, uh, see first what kind of need they're looking for in regards to diversity it can be anything from within the company itself as a corporate culture where they would like to just be more diverse and diverse uh, thinking it can be uh, starting from recruitment over sales to marketing so the entire spectrum of uh, what they're looking for but my uh, my mission is actually within the company of making the company generally more diverse and mm. uh, interested in diversity itself, because I've seen quite a bit of window dressing where because diversity is currently such a trend topic mm-hmm. that companies rather um, doing certain things around them. So it looks like that they're diverse, but then funding is missing, mu- budget is missing. And yeah, that actually those groups, established groups which show diversity, actually don't have the means to act upon it.
0: And interesting, you say this comes from the sort of idea and the passion comes from being in the cycling industry, but clearly you have a bit of a background in business and, and, you know, the ability to be able to do this. You get not often that a pure cyclist would come to this sort right. of thing. So, <laughs> yeah. Tell um, me a little bit about your background on that side of things first.
1: Yeah, I think it started actually. I now I have to go a little bit back. Um, I'm originally from Germany and when I, um, I was a volleyball player during that time and I, uh, had the plan, the goal to, uh, Play volleyball even when I study, and I knew in Germany that would be just a side subject. And if I really want to take volleyball like to the next level, I have to go to the United States. And since I'm not uh, very tall for volleyball player. Um, I had a very hard time to uh, yeah find a scholarship over there, uh, which I had to get because my dad told me, Monica, <laughs> in Germany, uh, university is for free, and mm-hmm. the United States you have to pay yeah a lot of money for it. So, uh, um, I better get a scholarship, and um, I did get one, but only one, and that was a historical Black University. So that was oh. my. Uh, First experience of being a minority due to my skin color, where there were white, 50 white students among 3,800 black students Mm. uh, at a university. And that was my first exposure to, yeah, what it means to, um, being, um, yeah, the minority and, um, how it can feel. When you do feel like not included in the community. Mm -hmm. And that's where the whole, my interest in diversity really started of helping others to, uh, yeah, um, especially minorities to being included. to create a diverse community. And um, later on, I worked also for the International Monetary Fund for the World Bank, which is completely diverse. And my boss, for example, from the International Monetary Fund, she was Iranian Muslim. And we went, um, you know, I experienced the whole Ramadan and um, her traditions. Um, mm. And that, yeah, enabled me to learn more and more what diversity means, uh, not only gender equality, but, yeah, religion, um, skin color yeah um so many more age um and my interest in that sense um yeah developed uh, more and more that now i've seen um from my experiences but also through different organizations um, and studies that especially in the sports industry it's a big topic or let's say it's a it's a topic that definitely um needs a lot of work to be done um, Mm. in that industry
0: Oh, that's fascinating. And I was just interested. You went back there. You said, uh, something about your dad, your dad saying that, <laughs> you know, I wonder how that shaped you because that's a pretty big challenge for a kid who wants to go to university because it could probably have been quite easy to just say, oh, well, I'll just stay in Germany then.
1: Yeah. Um I was determined. <laughs> I was determined <laughs> of a uh, sport always has been a uh, part of my life. My my biggest passion in my life and I wanted to play volleyball. I did not know what I want to study but I knew I wanted to play volleyball. And um to keep going and yeah, I've seen Hollywood movies and you know all the <laughs> kind of uh, <laughs> clichés around uh, US sports. I was very very determined going uh, to the United States and yeah, it took me a year to figure this all out by myself. Um and then yeah, I was able to get that one full scholarship to go to a historical black university in South Carolina. I lasted one year and then I had to transfer mm. to a different university because really that feeling of loneliness um, was very, very strong. And
0: mm. yeah,
1: um, I don't want to call it a d- depression, but it definitely put me um, into a mood, which I was not the happy Monica anymore. Mm. And exactly that feeling I, I learned so much now reflecting upon it. I learned so much from that, from that year And I'd never ever wanted anyone feels that way, being feeling that lonely just because of Mm. yeah um, external
0: features. And so this, you know, so you have presumably have a greater understanding now of how people of color feel within predominantly white uh, communities. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, I definitely uh, learned a few lessons. Let's say this. Of course, I don't Mm want to say I'm an expert in it, but yeah, Yeah. having been. experiencing this for one year, I uh, definitely learned what it means to uh, um, being, I guess, judged because of your skin color. And so, so you stayed, where did you transfer to? I transferred actually to a business school in Rhode Island in the north um, of the United States on the East Coast. And there mm-hmm. I finished um, my undergrad degree. That was a, definitely a completely different experience. Um, and then after undergrad, I I always wanted to, I, I always say, like, I think I watched too much James Bond because I wanted to work for the Secret Service. <laughs> so my focus was on international security with a focus on nuclear weapons in Iran and North Korea. Wow. And uh, I got into the program uh, at Georgetown, which focused on international security. And I did there my master's degree. hmm. And um, uh, thinking that I would work either for the foreign service or for the uh, secret service, it did not work out. Um, but I had the opportunity to stay in Washington, D.C. Then, and to start then for working
0: for the International Monetary Fund and later on for the World Bank. And so um, you wanted to join the CIA or something like an American organization? They-
1: I wanted the German, the German one. Because in yeah, CIA, yeah. you could not, um, as a German citizen, but I the BND, it's called yes. Bundesnachrichtendienst
0: in, in Germany, exactly. Ah, and when you say it didn't work out, it just, you it, it, it decided it wasn't for you or? In, they were looking for other majors
1: than international politics, ah. let's say this. <laughs> and I was still hope, um, hoping that they would secretly um, recruit me, but that ne- never happened.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and so you went to work for the IMF and stayed in the States, so I think, for nine years in total. Is that right?
1: Exactly. Um, yeah. Um, while I was then working for the World Bank, I uh, uh, someone handed me actually a bike. And said, So volleyball was over at that time, Um, four years of playing volleyball every day, a lot of practice and games. I was done basically with the sport at least for a while. And then I got into adventure racing first and someone handed me a bike and said, Monica, you should ride a bike while I was working for the World Bank. And after a year, I had to make a decision if I want to have an aspiring career with the World Bank or if I want to become a professional cyclist and uh, my family and friends uh, rather yeah a conservative traditional and uh, rather want to have the security my financial security um of course suggested uh, to me that I should go for the for the job at the world bank but my heart told me otherwise mm-hmm. and i went against that popular opinion and moved to europe uh, to uh, to ride in the first league the bundesliga mm-hmm. um and raced a few races such as the Amstel gold race only to realize after three months that professional cycling is not what I wanted to do. Why is that? Um, I uh, it was agra- too aggressive for me, and uh, the crashing really got me scared. Mm. There were many crashes I've seen, and luckily I was not involved in them. But I, yeah, I did not want to bear those consequences of them, and I decided that maybe professional cycling is not for me. Um, but I love sports. So I went back to the United States and did another master's, mm. uh, at the University of Minnesota in sports or better in kinesiology with a focus on exercise science.
0: Wow. That's a bit of a turnaround. I was just yeah. thinking something you said earlier, someone gave you a bike and within a year you were trying to decide whether you should be a professional or not. Yeah. That's, that's a pretty quick, <laughs> a yeah. quick turnaround from not really being a cyclist.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. It started with um, before cycling, totally ended adventure racing. That's uh-huh. a combination of trail running, mountain biking, and kayaking,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, all um, with orienteering. So mm-hmm. someone, um, so basically the elite category is a four-person team, co-ed team, and someone is a navigator. And mm-hmm. yeah, you're basically navigating to checkpoints uh, through m- mostly through those three sports, but it can be also other sports. And I was specialized on twenty-four to forty-eight hour races. Mm-hmm. And so I had, let's say the endurance,
0: Mm.
1: but, um, because it was very strenuous, I mean, 48 hours being awake, (laughs) you know, and you can't, like, I couldn't do it uh, too many times. And I decided that uh, running, I was not very good and kayaking, I found just not fitting to me. Um, Mm -hmm. but cycling at that point and mountain biking, I found interesting. And then someone gave me a road bike and said, Monica, I think you should just get into road cycling. I thought, (laughs) yeah, I am, you know, going through the middle of woods, um, going through the Everglades. And all of a sudden, I'm just riding through the streets of Washington, D.C. This must be really boring. Someone, um, uh, they invited me to a group ride. And I thought, well, 100K should be not a problem. um, As I was used to this from adventure racing. Yeah. And after 10 kilometers, I was um, in the back out. Oh, (laughs) no. Dropped. I got dropped. Exactly. And I was like, no, this cannot be. <laughs> and I showed up every single week until I made it. And I think that is also what fascinated me about the sport, really pushing my limits and being still um, surrounded by friends and having those um, fun sprints just for the town signs. And I think because I had so much fun also really pushing and being part of this group and really staying with it, that, yeah, that enabled me, I think, to make quite a quick progress.
0: And then, so you went back to the States to do this completely different other degree, uh, what yeah. did you say, kinesiology and sports science? Um, yeah, exactly. So kinesiology with a focus on exercise science.
1: So mm. basically sports. Yeah. The fun, the fun part was that um, I'm not a big fan of winter and um, when I applied for different degrees and um, for programs, I got in, uh, accepted into the you know, University of Arizona in Tucson, missing mm-hmm. in the desert. And it was all worked out. I had a research assistantship. Everything's great. And then my professor, three weeks before the program called me, he Started. he called me and said, Monica, don't worry, I still would love to have you as a research assistant. There's a small little change. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, okay, what's the change? He's like, well, um, I'm moving to my home state. Um, but I will take you with me and don't worry, you will be uh, getting a research assistantship there too. I was like, okay, so what's your home state? And he's like, well, Minnesota. E. And I was like, is that a state? <laughs> I've never <laughs> heard of it before. And then, yeah, it turned out to be the third coldest state um in the States. And then I learned what real winter means
0: oh my goodness
1: <laughs> yeah and uh I lasted this was a two-year program and I lasted for one and a half years because uh, one winter was like six months long and you really can't do a lot um during that winter and uh before the second winter started I went to my professor and said Eric um there's no way I can go through another winter so either I quit this program or you're sending me somewhere else and he did send me to Australia so I oh. finished my degree in Australia yeah <laughs>
0: I'm quite interested by this sort of narrative that you, you know, it's quite a, you seem quite bold in making decisions based on, I don't like this because there's a lot of people, especially women who stick things out because they should, because they feel they have to, because they don't want to let people down because, oh, people might think this, this or this about me, but you seem to have this quite clear vision of going, do you know what? This isn't good for me. I'm going to do something else. How do you feel? Like,
1: talk to me about that a little bit. <laughs> That's a very good uh, observation, Katie. Um, I think. I mean, and now I'm telling you this in a very like easy way. Of course, mm. like, all of those decisions I've done were not easy. Um, but I also realized um, my biggest. Um, the person who had the biggest influence and impact in my life and my decisions were my dad. Mm. And and he gave me always very rational reasoning why I should do certain things versus the other things. But even if I decided to do something else, he would be the first one <laughs> standing there in, for example, University of Minnesota and uh, visiting me in the yeah, third coldest state in the United States. So I I think he allowed me, Um, the people close to me allowed me to make my own decisions Mm. without making me feel that I should regret something Mm. um of course there were certain decisions they were hard and um I was the hardest person on me when I realized or when I thought this might not have been a good decision such as for example um when I decided to quit the World Bank and uh Yeah, become a pro cyclist only to realize after three months that this is not what I want to do. Mm. I thought I missed out on an opportunity at the World Bank because uh, I could not go back anymore.
0: Mm.
1: Um, But later on, I just realized those decisions also helped me to really live my life and not 10 or 20 years to look back at my life and regretting that I might not ever have tried out Mm. doing sports. So I really, I think, go by the principle that rather do something and fail than know that you maybe don't like it or yet you're not good at it than never trying it out and always wonder if you could or could have not done it.
0: I think that's really remarkable and I love the fact that you know you felt secure enough as you say with the people that loved you the most behind you saying you know we don't necessarily think it's the best idea, but, you know, go for it, do, do. And and I think that's really important because much as we'd all love to say, yeah, yeah, I made all these decisions on my own, many, you know, we are built for community and yeah. it, it's, it, it's so reassuring to hear that, you, you know, you had this sort of support behind you that you could go, okay, well, let's just see what happens. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And so you went to Australia to finish your program and did you stay there for long? No, because, um, and now (laughs) this goes along with, um, making
1: hard decisions. Um, Now I had a sport degree and Mm -hmm. I had the mission. I will find now my dream job in sports and everything will be great. (laughs) (laughs) Only that I did not find that very job I was looking for. And yeah, this time my dad, my family, my friends told me, Monica, now you have two master degrees, right? Now you should find like a real job. (laughs) And because I could not justify to them, but more not to myself, um, that I did not have like that I have an alternative, I decided maybe yeah I should go back to that normal path what I'm supposed to be mm-hmm. and I applied anywhere to anything and um, yeah I got into uh, became a management consultant at IBM in Zurich, Switzerland mm-hmm. <laughs> and I moved to Zurich, Switzerland and all of a sudden had a focus on marketing automation software starting there. Wow. I did that one year in Zurich and then I moved back to Australia, to Melbourne this time um, because I did enjoy Australia. And um, after two years at IBM, I realized, and it came up to me again, this kind of feeling like, Monica, this is not actually what you want to do. This is, yes, it was an interesting job. And I learned a lot um, in those last two years, but it's not my passion. And all of a sudden I was sitting unemployed, Um in the botanical garden in Melbourne, Australia, wondering what I want to do. And yeah, I was 30 years old and I basically had a midlife crisis of, I've done so many different things now and I still had no idea what I want to do. And I think that's what made me so um, well depressed, I don't want to say, but it definitely put me down thinking like by now 30, I should have figured out what I want to do. And I didn't. And since I uh, didn't have any strings attached, I didn't have kids, or so was married, and now I didn't have a job, I basically decided, okay, at least I can move where uh, I can ride my bike because this passion has always been um, there and at least um, where I feel comfortable with. And I looked at a world map and it's very tough actually to do when you have it, when you could live wherever you want to do, where would you move to? And I looked at the map had a few requirements and I decided I want to move to Malaga, Spain. And I booked a one-way ticket and packed my bike and off I was going to Malaga, didn't speak a word of Spanish, uh didn't um didn't know anyone and really had no plans besides trying to figure out what my purpose is, my professional purpose in life. And yeah, that is uh, when I uh, yeah, trying to find out. And I um, did a f- few jobs here and there, I always like followed like, okay, what could I like? What couldn't I like? But while I uh, discovered my own journey, I realized that there are actually quite a lot of people out there who have the same questions like me of trying to figure out what they want to do, where they really want to reach their full potential of discovering what they really can do in their lives and not just following the norms, what we're supposed to do. And that became then my mission, wanting to help those people of pushing their limits and really breaking their own barriers, their own ceiling of really reaching their full potential. And um, since I um, wanted to, I was looking for something where I can demonstrate exactly that to uh, what does it mean to push your limits, to do something which maybe seems seemingly impossible. And I decided to uh, then set a cycling record of doing something seemingly impossible, being the first woman of cycling the Vuelta Espana, um, three thousand kilometers in three weeks.
0: And you decided to do that on the same day, at the same time as the men were leaving, and you just got up early and did this their route just a few hours before. So, how did you come across that idea, or how did you fall into that specific idea? And uh, talk to me about the logistics and the difficulty of managing to do that.
1: I was living in um in Spain during that time and that was the biggest race in Spain. So um I think that's where the idea came from doing the Vuelta Espana. Um originally actually and n- didn't my goal was not to set a cycling record. That came later on when I heard more and more that I was actually the first woman doing that. Um and then First, uh, my mission was, or my mission has been the entire time, but uh, that was my message of inspiring others to go for a bigger challenge. And when, but when I realized that I would also set a cycling record, that's where also the media jumped on Mm. and I really could convey the message to a broader audience of, yeah, getting also people excited and being part of this mission. Um, When I told people about this, when I was preparing for it, 80% of the people said, Monica, (laughs) How many stages do you think you can do? Mm. And I heard that really uh, almost daily. Really? Yeah, yeah. And also some acquaintances were quite direct and saying that, yeah, this is definitely not possible to do. Not only because of those 3000 kilometers in three weeks, but just the logistics behind it, mm. getting the accreditation of the event organization that I'm allowed to be on the course um, mm. before them at the same day and um, getting uh, someone who's driving a bus for three weeks and yeah, over 4,000 kilometers because that person also had to bring me from one stage to the next, getting hotels for three weeks and because no one really believed in it um i had also a hard time to getting sponsors behind mm. it so there were a lot of obstacles already before i started the f- very first stage
0: i find that really uh, i find that really frustrating and kind of makes me a bit cross because i think you know i mean this, this is only what 3 years ago mm-hmm. and it's not like women had never been on bikes before it's not like women had not done incredible endurance events on bikes. And, and, and unless they were specifically talking about you, but you presumably had, you know, proved your sporting abilities with all the other things that you'd been able to do. I just find it really, you know, there's one thing where, you know, people project their own fears onto you for whatever you might want to do. But I just find it absolutely extraordinary that people actually said, well, this is ridiculous. Why would you do that?
1: yeah i uh but it really i must say do you know um who uh, said monica um let's let's not talk about the welter anymore let's talk about your next project because the welter will be boring you (laughs) do it anyway it was my dad (laughs) the very person who uh also yeah rationally knew my my entire life history and all the decisions and hard decisions i've been making and um, yeah, when I do something, then I go 200%. And that very person who might not have agreed with me to do certain things in my previous life, he knew that this would be just a matter of pushing through. And, mm. um, so having someone like this uh, at my back, you know, and hearing it, um, of course, when the closest people to me around, they know me and mm. they supported me, then that person who met me just a day prior to, um, something and told me I couldn't do it. Of course, I even didn't um, feel felt like I had to prove something because that person just doesn't know me. Of mm. course, they have certain assumptions, and they're okay. I was okay with them having the certain assumptions. Um, and
0: do you feel like it gave you a bit even more fire in your belly to get it done with people saying that you couldn't do it?
1: Um, actually, no,
0: no, um,
1: but no, because. Um, I always knew that if all of a sudden my motivations would be external, Mm -hmm. then I would put even more pressure on me, uh, which I've already had. And um, the feeling of failure um, was, you know, I was scared. Of course, I was scared that I wouldn't make it. And by thinking that I now have to prove even to more people that I have to um, make it put even more that fear of failure in me. So I really uh, tried to rationally distinguish saying, okay, this is really just for me and for my mission to inspire others to go for bigger challenges, not to prove anyone if I can do something or if I can't do something. Then I rather, for me, my biggest motivation was within myself to prove it to myself, not to others.
0: That's a very mature way of looking at things. Uh, That takes a a lot of self-confidence and I, I... I love that, and I see that within my children as they grow older, and I think it's such a, a a lovely thing to witness and to hear about as well. That actually, this is something I want to do for me. It's something that I want to prove that I can do, but only to myself. I find that I think well, can, well done to you because that's that's not easy to necessarily come by in life.
1: I think it's um, once you're at that stage. You're also free from any opinions and mm. from basically the judgment of others, which maybe put that fear or that pressure on us. And I think that's why even growing up, it's so important that instead of comparing ourselves with others, that it's more about really focused within ourselves and really knowing what we want. And I think that is by having made all the decisions in my life, those very hard decisions, I learned so much about myself, about my motivations, about my values, and that they becoming so ingrained within me. That the opinions from others, especially from those who do not know me, I don't want to say they don't didn't affect me, but uh, I could make a rational distinction between like, okay, that person is saying that because they believe that I'm like this, but I'm actually something, someone else. Um, that's why I think it's also so important making. Um, mistakes in that sense in life and trying things out which may or may not be possible because that help us also to understand um, who we are and when we know who we are then uh, we can also make decisions in the future really that are good for us and not to impress or because of external factors of yeah just living for someone else
0: Oh, so inspiring. I love it. Um, I was just about to ask you, how do you teach that? But actually, you know, even in the last couple of sentences, you've managed to explain it to me in a way that I perhaps wouldn't have thought of before. But how do you expand upon that? And how do you kind of get that in? Because, Because especially young women, young women, certainly from my generation, and I hope it's getting better, but, you know, we don't, we've not always had that reinforced in us
1: yeah yeah katie um, in fact actually um my first client if i want to say so it w- was my sister and my sister mm. is very um extroverted uh, she has tattoos and has like her hair um is yeah um she has a very extroverted personality and appearance and um she was debating if she wanted to have a tattoo And asked me if she should get the tattoo. I forgot where I was. And I was, um, and she was scared that the next recruiter or the next company might not take her because of that tattoo. And I asked her, Claudi, if you, um, how important is that tattoo for you? If that defines who you are, then the decisions of someone else should not matter. If you think just just for fun, you know, and that's just a trendy thing to do right now, then of course I would consider it. But if that is who you are and what you want and where you believe that defines you and that uh, mirrors your values, then there should no one be able to, the thought of that someone else likes or not likes you or approves or not approves you should not matter. So I think... Um, by going through all the decisions, basically what we're doing, we should always also ask us, is it really? Doing that, are we doing it for ourselves, or are we doing it because it's currently trendy, or for someone else? Mm. And I think a lot of times we're not asking ourselves those questions anymore. Mm. We oftentimes just going superficially through decisions, you know, because they're trendy right now because of the clothing we're wearing. Mm. But I think um, that's why it's so important sometimes making hard decisions because that and maybe doing something which is unpopular just to understand also uh, if we're okay with it or not. And if we're okay with it, that means
0: that's who we are. Mm. And what about when you make decisions and you think that it's who you are, but actually it's not? And you mentioned it earlier; it's about learning to fail. What? How do you teach people to deal with making that decision because they thought they really thought hard and they really thought it was what they wanted? Assuming, um, presumably, a little bit like when you decided you want to be a professional cyclist, mm. and then you went. Oh, this was not the best idea, or oh, it was a good idea, but it didn't work out. How do we learn from that?
1: Yeah, <laughs> and that's a very good question. Um, I would say that uh, any decision you're making for yourself, right, um, there's a reason for it that you take it. And when you're going on that next path, you're learning more about yourself. And then maybe you're learning more about that you don't like certain decisions, which maybe you don't have had the knowledge beforehand, that this might not be uh, what you wanted. For example, me being that professional cycling, that there were certain aspects I just did not enjoy. And in that very moment, of course, it was a very, very hard decision for me, saying, okay, um, I should stop professional cycling and doing something actually I enjoy. But I think that's also part of um, being ourselves, of not saying, oh, yeah, I did something wrong, but more about, huh, I just learned that this is not what I enjoy. And I'm okay with it, Mm. and I'm just taking a different path. I think it's um, oftentimes we're not changing paths, not because we would tell it ourselves that we did something wrong, but we are scared of the opinions of others. Mm. And that's where it goes back to, that any decisions we're taking, to learn very early on, that the decisions we're taking, that should be for ourselves, for what we believe, that's part of um, our values, of who we are, and then by making also unpopular decisions, also basically saying, okay, this was, I wouldn't call it failure. I would say lesson learned in that mm. sense, or like the path we pathway B <laughs> instead yeah. of pathway A. And we want to go back to A, um, being okay with it, you know, yeah. and learning from it because a lot of people there. Um, I've experienced that actually. They um, told me, okay, Monica, I can't do it. And then I did it anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might be jealous about it that I did it, and then as soon as they realize that I'm um, r- not regretting, but I realize like, hmm, this is not what I wanted. They're happy about it because they were they're scared for themselves that they um, might not do it, and they want did not want to wish me that I'm succeeding in mm-hmm. what I was, um, yeah, courageously doing. So that's why it's so important, really, to keep all the. The opinions from others outside because we don't also know what their motivations are actually for about their opinions
0: and also quite a lot of the time I find that actually when people don't express opinions it's very easy for us to make up what we think they think because of your Mm -hmm. own doubts your own sort of fears and you project you project onto them what you think they're projecting onto you and yeah, then it become yeah. it can become so whoa, all consuming yeah. so it's really important as you say to just say you know make it about intrinsic motivation correct Exactly. So let me go back because oh, I love all that stuff. It's so fascinating. But I want to go back a little bit to the Vuelta. And the first thing I wanted to ask you was, you know, I've talked to a lot of women who've done a lot of amazing, amazing things that require an enormous amount of not, not just physical preparation and mental preparation, but all the logistics, as you said before, you know, finding someone to drive you, hotels, accreditation, all that sort of thing. And getting to the start line, feeling mm. absolutely exhausted. Mm. <laughs> what was? What did you find? And this might be a stupid question, but what did you find more difficult—the sort of all the before stuff, or the actually turning of the pedals for that repeatedly, you know, long, really long, hard three weeks?
1: You know, actually, Katie, it was everything before, mm. because before I had a control. During it, I didn't. Ah. Um, and when I was actually at the start line. All the stress all of a sudden fell away. Mm. And I was like, here I am. You know, I made it to the start. In fact, actually, after the first day, I broke already my bike. But, oh. <laughs> I, might, but I realized like, if I've ever done everything I could mm. to make this possible. And I just have to ride my bike now. Yeah. And whatever comes ahead, it might be external factors where I have no influence over. I could be sick, which I was then too. There were so many. <laughs> I could break my bike, which had happened too. There were so many things. And I just tried to overcome those obstacles. And if I can't, then I I know I've tried everything. And I think that is the feeling um, I wanted to have. Just mm. give 100% and you can't give more. Yeah. If you give 100%, there's
0: no chance you can regret anything because you gave everything. That just made me feel all a bit goosebumpy. What a beautiful thing to say. I love it. And I know I hear it all the time, but I just, I love hearing it from people who have really truly given a hundred percent because it's not always that people do that, uh, you know, it, it, and nobody can give a hundred percent at all times in their whole life, but to truly be able to, st- to stand on the start line or start a new job or a new this, after you've made that decision and say, I literally, there is nothing more I could do. And now I just have to start.
1: Correct. And I, um, Katie, exactly what you mentioned in regards to giving hundred percent, that also does not mean that you have to work 24 seven. Mm. It's more about putting all your energy and heart into something which you truly believe in mm. and um, truly and genuinely believing that you want to make it possible. So it's, um, because that could be easily also confused at work that yes, I didn't get the promotion also because I didn't work um, 14 hours a day. Mm. Um, it's more about like if you uh, genuinely believe that you can make it happen and it didn't happen, then it is in that sense out of your con- tr- control. And mm. um, there were a lot of doubts which I had beforehand. And <laughs> a few emotional breakdowns mm-hmm. where I was like, no, I, I don't think I can make it happen. I would have such an easy way out when I could have just said like, oh, I have knee injury, for example, mm. um, six weeks out and say, yeah, I can't do it. And then I was thinking about this, Monica. And I always actually tell that story, too. It's a privilege for me mm. to be able to push my own limits, you know, be able to be there and be able to fail. Um, there are a lot of people who wish they had the chance to do it. Yeah. And because yeah. of health reasons or economic reasons or for whatever reasons, they're not able to do it. So why should I put myself, give myself own limits, you know, setting limits, irrational limits, just because
0: I'm scared of failing? Oh, Monica, you're just like a little world of inspiration. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so let me just um, quickly recap for everyone that's listening. Um, uh, is the Vuelta, uh, uh, this particular year that you did it is the Vuelta a 3,058 kilometers, 49,337 meters of vertical, 21 stages. So over three weeks. And it's up there with the Tour de France, which people may have are more likely possibly to have heard of if they're not into cycling. And you said you had to get accreditation. I actually didn't realize that when I heard about this. But you were up and and away at six o'clock every morning. How far ahead of the men were you, generally speaking, every day?
1: Yeah, um, so they start at 1 p.m. And I had, yeah, quite late actually. (laughs) And I had to start so early. Um, That was the deal with the organization. Mm. I'm allowed to do the course and to cross that last one kilometer. And that's where I needed the accreditation for, because that was usually closed off the Mm. last kilometer. I was allowed to do it. If I finish one hour or um, do not impede at all Mm. anything from the, uh, from the Vuelta Hispania. And because I was very much on the time schedule, and um, uh, that I, uh, and I did not want to have the stress of having the pros chasing me. <laughs> mm. um, I gave myself so much leeway that, yeah, I was uh, two hours, three hours sometimes mm. ahead of them uh, finishing because the day did not finish by finishing the stage. After that, we had to pack everything driving to the next stage, which mm. could be up to God. Some, that was the last stage, six hour drive. Wow. And then, uh, yeah, having dinner and lunch along the way. Um, maybe having some yeah um, interviews or some media relationships, um, doing the logistics, getting ready for the next day. Um, mm. So there were a lot of things that yeah I usually got to bed between 10 or 11 p.m. We need to wake up between yeah 4 to 6 a.m.
0: Wow. And did you have just one person
1: supporting you? I had one person, David, who was the entire three weeks with me. He was driving the van and then I... Always, except for two stages, had a person who was riding with me. Um, ah, okay. Entertaining me.
0: A different <laughs> yeah. person.
1: Yeah. And the longest person who was with me was Maya. She joined me a second week for one week. Mm. but Otherwise, I had um, sometimes people who joined me just really for 40 kilometers um, for a day. So it really depended.
0: Well, that's a huge um, support role. Because as you say, it's not just about driving. It's about making sure that you're fed, that your bike is fixed, that you're... Mm you know, in a hotel and backwards and forwards and route planning and all that sort of thing. Mm. Incredible. Were there days during the three weeks where you just, where you ever thought, oh, this is just too hard? Like, did you hit any real lows?
1: Um, Like mentally and motivationally, never. Because mm. I loved it. I absolutely loved every minute of it. It was because of the team. I mean, David was like, we were like best buddies during that uh, during Mm. those uh, three weeks but also um it's almost like a circus which uh, travels from one place to the next you had all the police officers joining during for three weeks you know support people for for the teams you know Mm. uh, for the pro teams were also there so we got to know uh, all of the other guys Mm. and it was almost like a family traveling around Mm. so that uh, kept my spirits very high in that sense but yeah, uh, the very first day after the prologue, eight kilometers, I broke my bike. Mm-hmm. <laughs> where I shifted my derailleur into a spokes, and uh, the derailleur fell off. So I had to get a new bike. Oh, that was a little damper. Um, when I but I I thought you know Monica, then I'm just riding with a new bike. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's okay. And then after the third week, uh, for example, I was very I got very very sick. Um, I bought half the pharmacy empty because. Yeah, just hoping that the next day I would be able to climb a 24% climb again because I was in the Pyrenees. And yeah, you do not want to go there with less than 100% uh, of leg strength um, Mm. up those mountains. But yeah, um, mentally or motivationally, um, there was no... In fact, actually, you know, at the last stage when it was finished, I was not... Yes, of course, I was happy that I made it, but I was equally sad Mm. because I knew now the team, that community was not there anymore and i loved actually living in a bubble for three weeks because mm. the only thing i had to worry about was just riding my bike and um all of that, all the sorrows around the world i didn't read any newspapers i had no idea what was going on mm. right and it felt kind of good because um it all all of a sudden becomes very close down to just one goal one uh one target and life becomes amazingly simple all mm. of a sudden
0: I've heard that from so many people, not just women that I've interviewed, but that, that do big adventures. And I, I've, I, I've experienced it myself. So sort I of think four days is the longest I've ever had it. No social media, no phone, mm-hmm. no connection yeah. to family or friends, really yeah. just one foot in front of the other or one pedal stroke after the other. And although it is brutally hard and you're pushing yourself, mm-hmm. as you say, it's so simple and I remember when my husband did race across America and I went as support crew mm-hmm. I, I I would be hard pushed to say who was more exhausted at the end of it because mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I mean he had to ride it but that's all he had to do he yeah. literally just had to ride his bike we fed him we changed him we <laughs> you yeah. know yeah. and whereas we were awake a thousand more hours than he was just running around and so it's it is that simplicity. Sorry, I'm waffling on a bit, but I, I love that. And I think it's such an important thing for people to experience at least once in their lives to just be so immersed in something that you really don't know what time of day or night it is. You are solely focused on one thing. I fully agree, Katie.
1: I think nowadays also we are so, um, over consuming with uh, different kind of um, media with mm. uh, so many things, which keep our attention that we actually are not able to focus on one thing. And more importantly, not able to sometimes see like what we like or what we don't like, mm. because we're not even asking ourselves because uh, the next thing something else is catching our attention. Mm. That's why I think it's um, sometimes good, as you mentioned, like disconnecting from everything and almost getting bored but mm-hmm. then the big questions are coming up mm-hmm. and um, you can really focus on yourself. That's why I love sometimes those solo rides. Um, I did, for example, one from Mallorca. I took the ferry over to Toulon, France, and rode to Munich um, wow. by myself five days. And the very first day, holy smokes, it was so boring. I was like, <laughs> I'm not sure I can do in the next four days. But then I got into a kind of a mindset, you know, almost like an numbing mindset. And all of those external factors, everything, my emails, uh, work, all of a sudden didn't matter anymore. And then mm. I became a kind of a... Um, a state of peace in Mm. my mind. And yeah, um, I think that always helps me to also then, you know, answer and uh, look at the big questions of what I really want to do in my life.
0: Mm. Oh no, I I totally agree because I, every year I try to do um, sort of four or five days walking on my own, Mm. uh, just me and the dog. And Mm -hmm. the first two days, and I've had to recognize that this Mm -hmm. is always what happens. The first two days, you know, I've left my kids, I've left mm-hmm. the family, I've left, you know, all, as you say, emails and this and that. And I, the mm-hmm. first two days I have this kind of this sort of twittery jittery, oh my God, I've ever left everything. Is everyone going to be fine? Mm-hmm. And what's going to happen? Mm-hmm. All the, you know, and your mind yeah, is yeah. just, it's like m- the monkey mind is just, yeah. and then the third day I wake up and I say, all I have to do today is walk yeah. to my next destination. And this yeah. sort of peace comes over me and i don't really listen to music i don't listen to podcasts i just yeah. allow myself and and i've had to recognize in myself that that's how long it takes to just wind down and and then i come back and i'm rearing to go again because yeah. it's just and and i love it i it's ah oh, it's just such an amazing feeling as you say allowing yourself to just get bored to drop away <laughs> yeah. all the external rubbish that we're always carrying around yeah. with ourselves exactly oh that's so awesome so tell me about mm-hmm. um you know this going forward you, you started this movement i don't know if that's the right word for it rad which i happen to know is german for wheel is that right yeah a wheel or a, um, a bicycle. bicycling yeah mm-hmm. ah, and so but it stands for something else it's an acronym tell us about that
1: Exactly. Um, I developed a method um, from all the things I've learned and the hard decisions I've been taking. I realized that there is a pattern actually in my decision-making and that I put into basically a method. Um, It's called RAD acronym for real adventurous and daring. It's about um, being yourself, being authentic. And yeah, what we also just talked about, I think this is way too undervalued of really understanding who we are and what we're standing for. Then comes the adventurous part about being uh, exploring, going out and um, developing a passion, developing a purpose, developing a goal. And the last one, a daring, is really taking the steps of that daring step to go for those goals, those scary goals, and to have the courage and the resilience to going for it. I must say though, um, this has been the first version and um, there is now a new version of it. It's the same principle, but I call it now the thrive period, which just uh, is displayed in a better way of how um from one stage to the next stage, you can actually set and pursue big, sometimes even seemingly impossible goals. Mm.
0: And so what's next in the impossible goal list for you?
1: Yeah, I cannot uh, share too many details mm. yet, but there is definitely something on the
0: horizon. Um, it involves gravel, <laughs> and Ooh. it will be in Europe. Yeah, um, and I assume by gravel you mean gravel riding. Bike, exactly. Sorry. Yeah, bike riding. riding. Yeah, exactly. for anyone who yeah. thinks what. Are you building a house? <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Um, ah, very cool. Um, and did you? But oh, honestly, I could keep talking for hours. But I'm conscious of everybody's time, <laughs> yours, mine, and anybody listening. What about? Uh, did you have a challenge, KT? For me,
1: you know, uh, I've been thinking about this, and um, does it have to be a sportive challenge? Absolutely not. Perfect. Because, you know, um, I've just, uh, I did a seminar a few weeks ago um, where the challenge was um, a self-reflection challenge. Mm -hmm. And the self-reflection challenge was about that you going back uh, to your um, school years Mm -hmm. and actually starting with what you, when you were a little kid, what was your dream job Mm. as a little kid was a firefighter, astronaut, something like that. And then going for every step you've taken in your professional life, starting like if you, uh, yeah, after school did you study? If yes, no, and then why did you take the first job? Uh, why did you quit the first mm. job? Why did you go on the one-year adventure? And going basically along until you where you are right now,
0: mm.
1: and writing down your decisions and motivations of why you've taken those. Um, decisions and motivations and going through it without judging yourself. That's the hard part. Without judging yourself. And, um, um, looking them back and this could take, um, I mean, I do that always constantly going back always and, um, reflecting upon what I've done Mm. because that helps you also to see what kind of future decisions and motivations you might have for your next goals. Mm. And by doing that, and I would definitely would allow myself at least an hour to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, really looking back, see if you have any patterns. Oh, yeah. See any patterns in your decision-making and write them down and uh, see that for any future goal you might have, that you always compare it to the patterns you've had in the past and see if you see a trend in it mm-hmm. and if it aligns. Um, also questioning and challenging it. Mm-hmm. Okay, is it good that it aligns? Um, is that on the right track I am? If it doesn't align, also trying to figure out why it might not align, what other motivations are behind it. Mm. I think that helps a lot often about really like making decisions who you really are. Mm. Oftentimes we're going, having a goal, you know, and I can give you actually an example. I decided once I want to do an Ironman, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I signed up for half Ironman and thinking, okay, this is my next goal. And during the and I completely did it because that is a trendy thing to do currently during Iron <laughs> But while I was sitting, Ben, in the fourth week or so in a swimming pool, you know, and mm. I looked at, this, at the water, I was like, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I'm not a good swimmer. I don't like swimming, you know. And then I realized, Monica, is really Iron Man the thing what you want to do? Mm. Or is that because of any external factors? And By questioning it, sometimes also the goals you want and how much heart and passion you want to put into it, you often see also like, okay, this is maybe not really my goal. This is a goal because I think that should be a goal of mine. And looking back for the decisions you have taken, the motivations you've taken, you know, you can see and compare your trends of like, okay, is this actually the goal, the future goal I want? And how have I dealt with it in the past? And that helps you to make also a quicker decision um for future goals if those are really aligning with um your values and your motivations.
0: Oh, I love it. That's a great challenge. <laughs> I'm already I'm already like half thinking about oh, yeah, oh, yeah. what was my dream job when I was a kid? Oh yeah. And it's funny you should, it's a great challenge anyway, but it's also particularly relevant because I am at a stage in my life where my kids are growing up a little bit. I'm doing more things for myself. You know, I had a period like lots of mums that I Mm. didn't do very much for me at all. And Mm -hmm. so it's really interesting, as you say, to look back and think, why did I decide to sort of be more focused on my kids and my family than on myself that all that kind of stuff so it's really interesting thank you so much that is a brilliant challenge challenge accepted <laughs> fantastic and i will keep you up to date i'm awesome. going to have to dig quite deep for some of those things but i love it that's brilliant monica it has been just an absolute pleasure talking to you i find that you know the the biggest the biggest joy i get out of doing this podcast is actually not uh, you know the numbers and people listening, and you know it's very nice to hear mm. that people enjoy it. But for me, it is like I learn so much every time I speak to somebody as as interesting and as accomplished as you. So thank you for adding to my my free masterclass in life. It has been an absolute pleasure.
1: <laughs> and thank you so much, Katie, for having me. I really enjoyed it as well.
0: Bye, Katie. Thanks for listening. I really hope you enjoyed that. I'll be back next week with some more great chat with another amazing woman. Bye-bye.